0: Last week we saw how much Jesus cares about worship. <laughs> God has honored men throughout the ages who have rejected the pagan practices that have crept into the the practices of those worshiping the true God and has and honored those who restored true worship to the way it was always supposed to be. God has always been against those who build up barriers to those who wish to draw near to them. And has always been against those who worship hypocritically and insincerely. Where their hearts are disengaged from their religious practices. And also we were reminded last week that (laughs) the next time somebody asks you the question, well, what would Jesus do? It's not out of the question to consider it might mean flipping over tables and chasing people out of church with a whip. That's that's possible. We saw that as that's what Jesus did in cleansing the temple. So in short, the very worship of the temple itself as we saw was corrupted and Jesus exercised his authority over the temple. That bears his name by restoring it to true and pure worship again, as many great men of old had done in the past Hezekiah, David, uh, the Levites, as we had discussed. As we finish the narrative we picked up, we began last week. Today we see the kind of worship God does enjoy and take delight in, as we pick back up again in verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. That is what the temple was really for. Not all this corrupt stuff that was taking place outside, not a place where people would be fulfilling their religious duties, or where commerce could take place, but where the broken can find healing. That's what <laughs> that's in a nutshell what the worship of God is for, where the broken can find healing. In this case, it's physical healing, but people still come today, as it was always intended, to where people would gather together and find a deep spiritual and emotional healing that takes place when we set our eyes on Jesus. Jesus. Because when, we, when we, our eyes are on him and when we understand the grace of Jesus Christ, the primary message of the church, an amazing healing takes place. Now, one of my favorite privileges, just, just as a Christian, is to share the gospel. And just tell people about the grace of God and what the grace of God does for us. And one of the most beautiful things that I can have ever experienced is when I'm talking to somebody about the grace of Jesus and I just see this weight fall off their shoulders. A weight that they didn't even know they were carrying until the grace of God removes it. Whether this be for the first time or somebody I'm... Talking to who's been a Christian all their life and just didn't understand the depths of God's grace. It's a beautiful thing to watch. <laughs> now, of course, the um, you know I, I've had some experiences where. You know, I remember as a younger Christian myself, you know, as I'm fully understanding the grace of God for the first time in my own life, and I remember sitting in a worship service and I'm praising God and I'm singing the songs and I'm just so passionately just enjoying the presence of God. The strangest thing happened. I Suddenly what popped into my mind was some of my friends and acquaintances that had drifted from God, that are keeping God at distant length and are dealing with all kinds of troubles and difficulties in their life and it just popped into my mind, God, if they could experience just a piece of the joy that I'm now experiencing, enjoying God's presence, the whole, the healing that could take place in their life I just wanted to see it so badly but it's up to them to experience, it's up to them to here. It's only our job to proclaim. I can't make somebody become a Christian. We can only present the grace of God. But getting back to our understanding of our text this morning, you know, it should also be said that church is not the temple. You know, nor is this place really, nor is a church like this really, technically speaking, the house of the Lord that referred specifically to the temple. That's the language the Israelites used of the temple. I mean, i don't remember seeing any sacrifices taking place here. But uh, that would be the place in the temple. Moreover, the temple in the Old Testament was where God's presence was especially felt and especially placed behind the veil in the Holy of Holies, separated from us. But by the end of the week in our narrative, that veil's going to be torn. But rather, in the New Testament, we see something greater than the temple. Jesus even said someone greater than the temple is here. Because do you know where the temple of God is now? If you're a Christian this morning, it's you. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.19 tells me so. The Holy Spirit is in you. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And now the the Holy Spirit is no longer limited to a location like this place. You don't have to come to this place to experience God's Holy Spirit. It's, It's already in you. You could feel and experience God's presence in your living room. What a gift. It's not somewhere you have to travel across the whole world or live in a particular town to experience No, know God has made it so that he can be worshipped in spirit and in truth neither on this mountain or in that mountain, as we read in our first reading, but that we will worship him in spirit and in truth everywhere. (laughs) Remember, Presbyterians of old would never call a place like this a church in the first place. This is the meeting house. You are the church. This is the meeting house for where the church, again, you guys, assembles. We're all little sanctuaries of the Holy Spirit in a, in some sense as we gather together to worship. Now, does that mean this building is insignificant and we could just do away with it? Well, I, I hesitate to say that, not in a mystical way, but for, for a really good reason. Not that we need it or not that God's Spirit is especially in here, but it's especially meaningful to us, especially those of us who have been here for a while. I mean, this people have been gathering in this very room for 160 years, roughly, to gather together to worship God, the sacred act of worship. That means something. And especially to those of you who've been around for a while, who've been worshiping in this room for that time. As you remember the, the names and the faces of people who sat next to you in these very pews worshiping together. It reminds us that our worship that is taking place is something that is timeless. It's something that goes beyond this very moment. It reminds us of the bigger story of which we are enjoying God in. Again, not in some mystical way, but in a very real way that elevates our worship in our own minds. Is, that, is this making sense? But it's a beautiful thing. And frankly, you know, I, I, I still consider a little bit of holy fear myself when I consider the great men of God that have stood behind this very pulpit. A little bit of uh, holy fear, if you will, when I consider what has been entrusted in that regard. It's no small thing that you guys ask me to stand behind this thing after the others who have stood before it's it's not lost on me the honor that I have, and thank you as the church for allowing me that privilege. It is an honor and a joy to be with you. <laughs> now, returning to our text again. Now, one might ask, you know, so Jesus is healing the lime and the blame the lime the lame and the blind still in the temple. Why are they still there? <laughs> well, why are, I thought Jesus chased everybody out. Well. How would the lame and the blind get out? Presumably the people who helped them get in are now halfway to Bethany at this point after being chased out by Jesus in the passage we covered last week. Now, it is amazing to me that the same hands that chased away the wicked are now touching and healing the lame and the blind. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that so beautifully poetic? that it's a reminder that God's presence can be a terrifying thing to those who are outside of his will, those who do not know him, those who have not truly embraced and enjoyed the gospel, the forgiveness and grace that we have in God. But that same presence that's terrifying to some is such a great comfort and a blessing to those who do know him today. That the God I worship is not terrifying. That's not the word that I think of when I think of worshiping my heavenly father. No, because I know that he loves me. His, his greatness and his power doesn't cause me terror. Rather, it gives me comfort because this great and powerful God is the one who has promised to provide for me, to protect me, to be there for me. That's comforting. I am so grateful for that, that that is the God who made those promises to me. And it should at the same time remind us those who do, well, the ones whom God may have to protect me from, those people should be terrified. It's two sides of the same coin. But I am secure in the love of God. I have peace with him because I know how much he loves me. He showed me on the cross. He showed me how much he loves and cares for me. Let's take it a step further. How beautiful are those hands, again, You know that showed his power and authority by overturning those tables. And those same hands that healed the lame and the blind are the same hands that were pierced with nails to buy my redemption. That's, that's a thought that just goes beyond words. And how are we to respond to that? How do we respond to this magnificent grace and power of God? Well, historically, there's only been two responses, and we see both of them in the remainder of our text this morning as we resume in verse 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. Perhaps surprised him to see that word there. But those who hate him will continue to hate him and become increasingly indignant towards him. It's, I mean, the, these men saw the wonderful things that he did. It says in our text, the wonderful things that they did, but didn't view them as wonderful as you and I might. Doesn't it just amaze you that we can look at the same Jesus? and some people are indignant towards him and others are awestruck with the same jesus it's it, it's it's profound but what but what shapes our response is really the question what well, what are we made of what, who are we it's been said that the same wax that the same sun that melts the wax also hardens the clay the same sun that melts the wax is the same sun that hardens the clay the sun in the sky is doing the same thing it's just beaming down its rays but depending on what you're made of it changes it changes how it affects you so the 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 ones that are the wax that's like so that that is those of us whose hearts are once exposed to the grace and love of god it just melts melting for god but others exposed to the same thing, again, looking at the same Jesus, their hearts become hard. And again, the question comes down to, if, if, this is same true, if this is true of the sun in the sky, how much more so is this true of the Son of God? How each of us, looking at the same Jesus, react differently, which begs the question, the question's obvious, isn't it? What are you made of? What's the state of your heart towards God? as those who are apathetic towards Jesus will continue to slowly drift into hatred and indignation. But those of us who have been transformed by his grace, those whom the Holy Spirit is working on your heart, even if you haven't made that public profession of faith, and God is just working on your heart, God's going to lead you deeper into him over time, I believe. Now, <laughs> Talking about their response, these whose hearts have been hardened as though clay. <laughs> as I think about their indignation, you know, I, I I I notice in my own life sometimes I get so flustered, I I can get so angry sometimes. Unfortunately, most of you guys don't see this. Sorry to those of you in the back, but I I can get so flustered sometimes that you know, like maybe I'm not the only one here where you don't know what to say, so you just kind of say something or the most random thing. You know, you don't know where to begin, so you begin with the most random and pointless part of your argument. And that's where you begin. I kind of see these <laughs> these chief priests doing that in verse 16 as we've resumed that because they they they're looking at the money on the floor, the animals all over the place. Um, and they see these kids singing. And their response in verse 16 is and they said to him, "Do you hear what these are saying?" And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise. <laughs> Asking, hey, don't you hear what these guys are saying? They're calling you the Messiah. They're calling you the son of David. Don't you know what this means, Jesus? Aren't you going to stop them? And what's amazing is perhaps for the first time in Jesus' whole public ministry, He answers in one word, yes. He clarifies it, yes, he does. But he answers very straightforward, yes. I do hear it. I do understand it. And I'm going to make no correction to it. Because these kids, they can see something you can't right now. Amazing how that is. Isn't it just so beautiful that these kids have seen something that these these trained theologians cannot see? That's one thing I never get tired of seeing, the fact that you get these people who spend their whole lives supposedly studying the scriptures and life and religion and philosophy, and yet they can't just see the beautiful simplicity of the gospel that even a little child can pick up a Bible and see. I'll never get tired of that. But Jesus here, furthermore, quotes in response Psalm 8, uh, talking about out of the mouths of babes you have perfected praise, a verse that literally refers to God accepting praise from little ones. God accepting praise from little ones. And he says, well, this is a verse that applies to me. What does that say about who Jesus is? What does that say about who Jesus is? That he's God. Accepting the praise of these little ones. And how many times have we already had to point out in this this one gospel how many times Jesus has asserted his claim to deity? The fact that he is God. And it's sad that I have to point it out time after time after time because there are so many well-funded documentaries and best-selling so-called scholarly articles that uh, and, and books that make the false assertion: "Oh, Jesus never claimed to be God." Again, uh, I don't know what book you're reading. You haven't read the primary source, certainly not very carefully. But no, God has ordained these children to play to praise Him, to praise Jesus for who He is. And I believe I've said this before, but the praises of children got to be one of the most beautiful things in all the earth. They have the most pure worship you've ever seen. <laughs> I mean, because adults, let, let's admit it. Our worship can be kind of pretentious at times. We say things, but we don't think about what they mean. We, we can sing loudly and some churches wave their hands around in the air. But we can do that without engaging our minds and our hearts with what we're saying. We're just moving to the music. Perhaps we're even moved by the music itself rather than the God who moved the author to pen the piece. We could be disengaged in that way. Kids, however, are 100% honest in their worship, in my experience, or whether you want them to be or not they uh they if they are bored, they will tell you, and it will be written all over their face if they're not engaged. It's just the way that they are, and you know what I'm okay with that because you know where they are, you know if you can need to be more engaging with them, and my goodness, when they are engaged, it is the most beautiful form of worship. you want to feel lukewarm in your own experience with Christ. Watch a child worship God. It is a beautiful thing. You know, to this day, nothing has brought me more joy than when I used to play guitar for a special needs children's ministry. There was one girl there, when the way that she would sing, Jesus loves me, knowing Jesus loves me, the fullness of joy that would just exude from this girl with so much joy, so much authenticity, so much conviction. I've never seen that before in my life. I'm still to this day so moved by it, years after the fact. If I ever need to humble myself or think I'm something I'm not, I think back to that little girl and I think to myself, man, I'm not there yet. But by the way, stepping back for a second, where did these kids even get this idea to cry out, Hosanna to the Son of David? Where did they get that idea from? That's not something kids just walk around and start saying, do they? (laughs) I mean, they were crying that out because that's what they heard from their parents when they were proclaiming the same thing only the day before. The children were praising Jesus because their parents were praising Jesus. You see where I'm going with this, church? That's a profound truth. I once heard that, again, children will grow up to be like you, whether you like them to or not. That's a convicting truth (laughs) for some of us. That was convicting for me when I became a parent. That scared me into, you know, like really making sure, am I really in your will, God? Am I the best that I can be? And am I on the straight and narrow path that I need to be on? It made me want to become the fullest of who God has made me to be because I wanted my kids to grow up to also pursue to become the fullest of who God has made them to be. It was that that mindset was a real changer in my in my own mindset. And and by the way, that means teaching kids not just not just what to avoid, which might come be the first thing that comes to mind. Certain habits that we might need to get rid of in our own lives. But because, because eventually they're going to be exposed to the world, even all the things I'm withholding from them, they're going to find out eventually. But my prayer for them isn't just to instill within them the path to avoid but also the way they should go, as the familiar proverb reminds us. Yes. And for that very reason, you know, I've been trying to do something new in my own household. I'm trying to do more frequent family worship. To just get together and have one of the kids even lead us in a short word of prayer. I'll bring out my guitar and do a song or two together. And then just get into the word together as a family. Do I have the time for it? No. <laughs> Do we make it happen? We're trying because <laughs> it's worth it. It, it. I couldn't think of a greater cause because, I mean, for one, I need this. <laughs> I need to be in the Word of God. I need to be, have a more steady diet of regular worship and prayer and fellowship, even within my own family. And secondly, It shows them how much I need this. And I want them to see that in my own life. I want them to grow up knowing how much mom and dad love to worship. How much mom and dad love to be in God's word, to be in church together, to pray together. I want them to see that desire. Because here's a fundamental truth about life. You can't give away what you don't have. You can't give away what you don't have. See, there's a reason why my kids aren't going to receive a multi-million dollar inheritance. I'll give you a guess why. (laughs) I don't have that kind of money. I can't give away what I don't have. (laughs) But, um, But if that is true, we... If that, if that fundamental principle is true and I can't give away what I don't have, how do I expect my children to just magically discover and walk away with a greater, deeper spirituality than I have? It doesn't always work like that. But Proverbs 13.22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And I believe that's just as true spiritually as it is materialistically, perhaps even more so. So, to ask the question straightforward, those of you who are parents, grandparents, great-grandparents this morning, what's the spiritual heritage you're going to leave your family? What's the spiritual heritage you're passing on to your own kids? I mean, many of them know you love church. That's, that's a given. Do they know that you love Jesus? Do they see that difference? Do they see a hunger for him in your life? A, a love for him? A love for his people? A love for his word? A desire to pray? A desire to worship? Other than Sunday morning? Is this part of who you are? Because, again, looking at the bigger picture for a second, most people don't become Christians because a street evangelist is so persuasive or because an, an outreach we might do is so effective. Rather, they, they, they see you, they see you living your Christian life. And they say, I don't know what that is exactly, but I know I don't have that, and I want that. I want that for me, and I want that for, you get the point. And by the way, it's never too late to change your legacy. I'm not just talking about people with kids my own age. It's never too late to change your legacy. You know, the kids and the grandkids will still notice today if you have a vibrant relationship with Jesus. If they see an open Bible at your house and one that, Moves around it is is not just permanently on display somewhere. I've, I know people who do that. That doesn't count. But if they see you do that, if they walk in, they catch you praying on a random afternoon or evening. They mark that in the back of their minds. I know I did growing up. And I know that even later in life, they start to put those things together. That has an effect. None of those things obviously guarantee results. Please don't make me overpromise something. Kids have free will too, and they can choose to walk away. Not every story of the prodigal son has a happy ending. But, But they will notice those changes, and they will be drawn seeing God moving in your life. They take better notice. It's never too late to be a positive influence spiritually within your family. Something to keep in mind. But finally, with that in mind, we'll conclude our text in verse 17 that says, And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Bethany was just a small village about two miles away from Jerusalem. Jesus' dear friends, uh, Mary, Martha, and uh, Lazarus, who Jesus raised from the dead, lived in Bethany. So, Many scholars actually believe they all stayed in the same house for this particular week. We're not sure. It's cool to think about. But one thing I do know for sure, God loves pure worship. God loves it when we reach out to him in prayer and worship him from the heart. And whether this comes from the pure praise of children or from adults, he loves it. Those whether it's coming from those raised in the church or those who found Jesus later in life. It doesn't matter what you've done in your past as a Christian, good or bad. We don't get to ride the merits of yesterday. What is the state of your heart today with Jesus Christ? What is the state of your heart now? Do you delight in what Jesus has done for you? Are you rejoicing in your own works and your own causes you support? Or is your your Christianity rooted in the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross? Is your worship transactional, where we give worship expecting something in return? Or rather, is it a relationship from the heart with the God who loves you and delights to show grace to you? If that's the state of your heart, you will enjoy the wonders of the pure worship that God has called each of us to enjoy. Thanks be to God. Amen.